Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, which will be found on page 44 in your pew Bibles or page 84 in the large print pew Bibles. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. We thank you that you are the Lord of all creation. You have not only created, but that you are the one who sustains. You are the one who leads us and who guides us. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to remember who you are and encourage us to follow you everywhere you lead. God, we thank you for your word that we have to read and hear today. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that have been prepared by you to be changed, that we would even today be made more and more like the people that you created us to be, as those who reflect you to all creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 50, this comes at the very end of the book of Genesis, and it is when Joseph has been betrayed, and he's been in Egypt, and his brothers come back to him. And he hasn't gotten his revenge yet, but they're pretty sure it's still coming. So in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I'm looking at Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Paul continues to write to the church in Rome, telling them how it is that their Christian faith works out, especially as it relates uh, one to another. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. 
For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have been looking at parables and uh, the ways that Jesus uses parables to explain what the kingdom of God is like, and this morning we have another one of those, but before we get to that, of course, I have to bring up the election again, because it's that week, so it's, it's got to be done. Um, but only in this way, and that, and that is, uh, the phrase double standard has been thrown around an awful lot in this particular uh, election cycle, from both campaigns, where you have, uh, she's got a double standard, he's got a double standard, uh, the FBI's got a double standard, the media's got a double standard, it's all around, double standards everywhere. And for those of you who aren't aware what that phrase means by now, it's having one standard for yourself and another standard for others. So this is, it's fine when I do it, it's not okay when you do it, that sort of thing. And this is something that has been uh, thrown as an accusation against everybody else because they're all aware that we hate double standards. So we are not okay with anybody having one. Except, and here's the beautiful irony of it, we hate when other people have double standards. But it doesn't bother us when we have it. Which is funny, because that in itself is a double standard. (laughs) And there, uh, yeah, we are. We are guilty. So the parable that Jesus tells us, though, today talks about double standards and a particular area in which we are so, so prone to have a double standard, and yet he shows us clearly not only how it is unacceptable to have a double standard in this area, but also shows us why, why it's completely unacceptable to have a double standard in this area. Now, for this, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And if you were at Worship on the Water, a lot of this is going to sound really familiar because this is you know, two months ago when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer and going through it line by line. We got to that section about forgive us our debts as we forgive uh, the debts of others. And we looked at this uh, passage then as a way to help illustrate what he was talking about. And now we, we get it again. This is um, <laughs> not the right chapter. There we go. It was the right chapter. It was the wrong book. Matthew 18. And this is a story that comes in three parts. And it follows two things. We'll deal with what it follows first. It follows uh, Jesus saying what to do if somebody sins against you, and that process that we have uh, given in Matthew 18 of how to make it right with them. You go and you tell them, this is what you've done. (laughs) And you try to heal and restore the relationship. And if they won't listen, then you bring others with you. And then if they still won't listen, you bring the whole church, that whole process. But it's what to do when 
when you've been wrong. And so then Peter follows us up. This is the other thing. This is uh, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I'm sure you have a footnote, seven, 70 times seven. Um, the idea there is the same. More than you can keep track of. More than you thought any, any sort of reasonable person would ever say to do. Way more. Almost an infinite amount. This is his answer to Peter. So this is what sets the whole thing up. Jesus says, here's how you're to do things. Peter says, so how many times? And as we mentioned, I worship on the water. C.S. Lewis talks about the idea of forgiveness and says that it's, uh, everybody thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then to even mention the topic is to be met with howls of anger. Yeah. You have to wonder if at this point Peter was having, wait a second, some of those howls of anger. So Jesus tells a story in three parts. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's part one of the story. Part one of the story is a man who owes the king a lot of money. And when the debt is called in, he can't pay. But do you see what he asks for? He does not say, please forgive my debt. What does he ask for? Just give me more time. Just, if, you, if you just give me more time, I can pay it off. I can do this. And we might believe him if we didn't have footnotes in our Bibles. But I'm guessing yours probably has the same thing mine has, which when it says 10,000 bags of gold, it's actually in Greek, it's the 10,000 talents. And it says a talent was worth about 20 years of a day laborer's wages. 20 years worth. But that's only one talent. It's worth 20 years. There's 10,000 of those. Which I did a little math. Works out to about 73 million days. That's all he's got to work off. So if you read that, if you look at the footnotes there, you find out how much it is that he actually owes. Just give me a little bit more time. You think that's going to work? You think that's going to do it? No. What Jesus is saying is this man has a debt he can't possibly ever pay. Even if he were to work the entire rest of his life, even if all the rest of the members of his family work with him and for him to pay just what he owes, still doesn't even come close. It's not even a drop in the bucket. Which is probably why he doesn't ask to be forgiven. It's probably why he asks, just give me more time. I, I, I gotta, I'll, I'll figure it away. I'll scheme it somehow. And then what the master does, what the king does, it says that he, uh, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In other words, the, the king himself is the one who ends up having to pay, who ends up eating 
and absorbing that debt from his own resources so that this guy can go free. Way above and beyond. Above and beyond anything that would ever be expected of this king to do, especially for one of his servants. And yet, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's part one of the story. Don't forget it. (laughs) Part two of the story is the part that most people live on a day-to-day basis. Part two of the story is this. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. That's part two. That's the part we live on a daily basis where, this, by the way, this is no small debt. If you'll look at your footnotes there for the, for the math lesson, you have 100 silver coins, and this works out each one of those silver coins, what is a denarius, which works out to the daily wage of a day laborer. So he owes him about three and a half months um, of what, what he would be earning. So be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. You actually could pay it back if you, you wait long enough. And yet, there's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's no cancel. There's not even given time. It's no. You owe me, and you're going to pay. And by the way, this part of the story, if this is the only part we know, say, well, yes, justice must be done. He owes it. He's got to pay it. You do the crime, you do the time. (laughs) This is what it is. That's the way the world ought to work. And so you'd expect that the servants around would say, yeah, you, you borrow the money, you're in debt, you pay it back. But they don't. Our friends... Our friends might be the ones who say, yeah, you do have every right to hold it against them. You do have every right to make them pay. And they might be encouraging us along those lines. Listen to me. If your friends are encouraging you to hold grudges against people, it's understandable. If they're only thinking about part two of the story. If your friends are encouraging you to hold grudges against people, please, 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 Remember yourself and remind them about part one of the story. Because we are all so good at forgetting. And this is where that double standard comes in. Mercy for me, justice for them. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Here we have part three. Part three says, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his, ma- his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he, could pay back, until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Yikes. This is the part we want to ignore. <laughs> We want to pretend that's not even in there at all. As though forgiveness is an optional thing. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian, and sometimes I'll forgive some things, but you know, I mean, not everything. 
But Jesus says this is a double standard that will not work in the kingdom of heaven. And as N.T. Wright points out, this is not an additional bit of moral teaching. Refusal to forgive is cutting off the very branch we're sitting on as Christians. In other words, if we are a forgiven people, we need to be a forgiving people. That's what it means to be children of the king, to have that family resemblance. And I think one of the reasons why we meet this with such howls of anger, this idea of forgiveness, is because we forget part one. Because we look at the situations that we have to forgive in our own lives, and we say, it's too much. I don't want to pay that. They don't deserve it, and I don't want to pay it. And I got, you know, my groups of friends saying, and you shouldn't anyway. Where's the justice? But it's because we've forgotten part one. But if we remember part one of the story, then this doesn't come as a command to do something we don't want to do. It comes as a working out of a living the life that we have been given and are called to live. And actually, if you look at the ways that, uh, that the command to forgive is usually given, it's given the way that most of the commands in the Bible are given. Not in a vacuum, as we normally take them. As though God is saying, this is what you're to do. Do this. But those commands that he gives are almost always given as a way, I say almost always, but as far as I can think off the top of my head, always, given as a response for who God is and what he's already done for us. And then the commands are given as a, this is how you then live with me as your God and you as my people. And so, for example, we can go to Ephesians 4, 32, and it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And we say, yep, there it is. There are those commands again. We've got to be kind to people. We don't want to be kind to them. We've got to be compassionate to people, I guess, if I must. have to forgive each other. I don't know about that one. But that is not just a command uh, isolated from everything else. But if you'll read the rest of the sentence, it goes like this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. In other words, he went first. Be imitators of God, therefore. That's the next verse. I'm going too far. Um, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And by the way, this is in Ephesians chapter 4, because Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are not giving us commands of how we're supposed to live. It's giving us who God is and what he's already done for us in Jesus. There go my notes. You have the same thing when you look at the, uh, the Ten Commandments. You go, yeah, okay, so this is how it's different in the New Testament because in the Old Testament it's just law, law, law. No. There's a lot of law in the Old Testament, but it also always is following who God is and what he's already done for his people. The giving the Ten Commandments it was done not before they came out of slavery in Egypt, but after. And if you go to Exodus chapter 20, do you know how the Ten Commandments even starts? Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. He doesn't start with, okay, don't kill each other. Stop committing adultery. Quit stealing. Quit lying. He doesn't start there. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is where it begins. 
not with what we're supposed to be doing, but who God is and what he's already done. If we forget that, the rest of it doesn't make sense. And this is why we can't look at a command to forgive and divorce it from who God is and the forgiveness he's already given to us. This is why Jesus tells the story when Peter says, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? Maybe seven times? That seems like an awful lot. (laughs) If we're only looking at part two of the story of how much somebody owes, we're like, that's like three months worth of work. They owe me a lot. That's a big deal. Jesus never says it's not a big deal. But he says, you're looking at the wrong thing. Don't look at how much they owe you. Look at how much you've already been forgiven. Go back to part one of the story. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a king who forgave more, more, more than could ever be paid. The king who went first in all of it. Let me tell you, this is one of the reasons why when we gather every week, we have a giant cross front and center so that we remember always that we are not coming here as people who are commanded to do things that are hard, though we are. But we're coming here as people who have been forgiven, from people who God has already gone first. And now we come learning about how do we then work that out? How do we live that forgiveness life as people who are being made more and more to look like Jesus? Some of you are thinking, you grab the hymnal instead of your Bible. Hang on. We just sang this morning, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And verse 3 caught my attention more so today as we look at this topic. It says, As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness. Ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. This is why the servants were outraged. Because this guy was not looking at what the king had done and how his life was now going to reflect that in, every, in his own relationships. But he was focused instead on how he'd been wronged, not how he'd been forgiven. That changes everything. If we forget part one of the story, we will cry for justice for those who have wronged us. But what Jesus tells us, if we cry for justice for them, we have to also expect justice for ourselves. One of the saddest parts is there will be some people who understand that and will still choose justice over mercy, who will grit their teeth, no, will gnash their teeth and say justice must be done and if I can't be forgiven without forgiving them so be it but I will never forgive them I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that come at the end but there's also a joy a joy that can come when we understand what it means to be forgiven people and therefore forgiving people. And with that, there is no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's the joy that comes with the mourning.
The only way this works, again, is when we keep our eyes on who he is and what he's done. That's why we celebrate communion twice a month now, remembering who he is and what he's done for us, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. When we forget part one of the story, we will live like the rest of the world. And we might still call ourselves Christians, but we won't be living as those who should be called Christians, ones who look like Jesus. You remember the story of Peter walking on the water? It's kind of like the story of Jesus walking on the water, but a little different, a little more directly applicable to us. It's when Peter is doing the impossible because Jesus has called him to it. And as long as Peter is keeping his focus on who Jesus is, and what he's called him to, he can do the impossible that he could never do on his own. But when he gets distracted by all the things around him, and he loses sight of who Jesus is and what he's called him to, he sinks. If we are to be a forgiving people, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to. This is not something we can do on our own. We have to keep our eyes on him and understanding the forgiveness that he has given to us. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. May we, as a forgiven people, be forgiving people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.